0: Hey there, folks, and welcome to DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. This is episode 29 of the show, and my name is Drew Ray. I've spent most of the past week marking safety management systems assessment papers, and the week before that teaching through-life safety. So the part of safety engineering currently loaded to the front of my brain is safety ethics. Ethics is an important part of any engineering. But for safety practitioners, Ethics is not just important, it's also hard. We operate in a world where perfect safety is impossible, and so trade-offs need to be made between risk to humans and other values. We work amidst imperfect people, where ascribing blame is often not only unjust, but counterproductive, and yet where explanations need to be found. We strive to improve organizations, where our own reputation and influence are valuable tools, and where fighting losing battles can blunt those tools. For these reasons and others, I think it's worthwhile for safety engineers and managers to have some grounding in ethical theory and practical ethical decision-making. There's no point in trying to teach and learn ethics though, unless you understand what makes ethics hard. It's easy to give someone a code of ethics, describe an immoral act and ask them which item of the code was broken. But that's not what real-life ethical decision-making is like. For starters, in real life, your own hands are never squeaky clean. No one, if they want to be taken seriously, raises a formal objection every time they see an action or decision they don't fully agree with. Usually what brings us to the point of complaining is not a single thing but a batting average. The sheer number of problems that are being ignored or the time taken to resolve them Formal complaints come out of a failure of informal reporting and resolution systems. And whistleblowing, in turn, comes out of a failure of formal systems. Once you reach that point, someone can always ask, why didn't you raise this earlier? Why are you making such a fuss now when you didn't before? At a meeting the night before Challenger was destroyed, engineers from Morton Thiokol were recommending a restriction on launches at low temperatures, a principled, ethical stands. Except that their recommended launch temperature was warmer than a planned launch that morning that they had agreed could go ahead. As the forecast temperature got colder and colder, they realized that they had to take a stand somewhere, but their position was weakened because they'd failed to take a stand even earlier. In the Bay Area Rapid Transit System case, often just called the BART case study in engineering ethics courses, two engineers had tried for years to get improved oversight of an automatic train control system development. They'd just about given up when a third engineer started expressing similar concerns, and they put their case together to a member of the board of directors. He in turn put their concerns anonymously to the board, but he also leaked the issues to the press. During the witch hunt that followed, the engineers lied about being the authors of the complaints. And they were ultimately sacked, not for the complaints, but for lying. The court cases were still proceeding when automatic control system problems caused a BART transit vehicle to crash, injuring several people. The other reason that safety ethics is hard is that we are often put in situations where different choices promote different values. This is seldom as straightforward as simply safety versus money. It often involves short-term risk reduction versus long-term risk reduction, or having stronger safety evidence versus getting a potentially life-saving product to the market quickly. And sometimes it means balancing hazards which threaten different parties. For the same situation, two different practitioners could apply different systems of ethics and come to totally different conclusions while still both behaving ethically. This kind of takes us into the realm of philosophy. I find philosophy personally fun, but it isn't to everyone's taste, so don't worry, we're just going to stay in this realm for a little while. Broadly speaking, there are three systems for thinking about ethics. Deontological, consequential, and virtue ethics. Deontological ethics are rule-based. An action is right or wrong depending on whether it obeys the rules. Judging actions against the Ten Commandments, or against an engineering code of professional ethics, or by whether they break the law, are all deontological tests. Consequential ethics, on the other hand, are outcome-based. An action is good or bad, depending on whether it's likely to have a good or bad result. A common example is utilitarianism, which seeks to maximise human well-being, the greatest good for the greatest number. Strictly speaking, hedonism, acting to maximize your own pleasure, would also be a form of consequential ethics. The third system, virtue ethics, focuses on the person performing the action rather than the action itself. Each potential action exhibits different personal qualities and the system tells us to focus on the action that matches the person we want to be. None of these three ethical systems is perfect. They all have cases where they demand actions which just don't seem right. A classic example given against deontological ethics is as follows. Lying is wrong. Under rule-based ethics, you don't get to rewrite the rules because of the situation, so lying is always wrong. But what if a young girl comes to your house and begs to be hidden because an ax murderer is chasing them? You hide them? Then a man appears with a bloody ax and asks if you've seen the girl. If you tell the truth, you're both going to die. Most people in that situation, even those who normally believe that lying is wrong, tend towards thinking that some form of deception just might be justified. An example against utilitarian ethics is the dish. During the Apollo 11 moonwalk, the best available television signal was coming from the radio antenna at Parks Australia. Originally, the astronauts were scheduled for a rest period, but they couldn't sleep, so the moonwalk went ahead earlier than scheduled. The park's antenna had to be pointed right at the horizon to get a clear signal, despite dangerous wind gusts outside the operational safety margin. Was it okay to risk the lives of the antenna staff to provide a television broadcast? What if it wasn't the moon landing, but just a football match? Under consequential ethics, there will always be cases where a trivial good that comes to a lot of people could outweigh causing unfair risk to a small number of people. In the really extreme case, you could use a utilitarian argument to justify involuntary organ donation. That's the point where even committed utilitarianists start getting a bit squeamish and start trying to do an end run around the issue by discussing how harmful it would be if we became a society that allowed those sorts of things. In other words, a consequential reason for adopting deontological ethics, or vice versa. Practical decision-making usually requires us to adopt some form of balanced approach. For example, rule consequentialism recognises that there are some rules which, most of the time, lead to the best outcome. Instead of trying to calculate the utilitarian right answer each time, we just apply the rules most of the time unless they don't seem to fit the particular situation. So under that sort of idea, lying is wrong not because it's wrong, but because it usually leads to bad outcomes. There may be times, though, when it doesn't lead to bad outcomes, and in those times, lying is okay. Another balance would be to apply consequentialism in general, but with the understanding that there are some strict rules that just can't be broken, regardless of the greater good. For example, we might decide that an engineer should act to maximise the public good But even if it maximizes the public good, you're still not allowed to lie about safety risk. One useful approach for putting this together to make ethical decisions is called Davis's Seven Steps for Ethical Decision-Making. It was originally published in a book called Ethics in the University, but it's been adapted a number of times for a range of different applications. The seven steps are as follows. Step one, state the problem. The key here is to understand what makes this an ethical situation. Typically it's because there's going to be a choice or decision to be made and you're worried that one or more of the options may not be ethical. There may be a clash of different values or multiple competing interests at stake. Step two, check the facts. Often the initial assessment of the situation isn't quite right and it tends to make assumptions about the motives, actions and inactions of others. Often apparent ethical problems can change dramatically if you just go and get a bit more information about what's really going on. Step three, identify the relevant factors. Who's involved, what are the relevant laws, what codes of ethics or other rules apply. Step four, develop options. The real importance here is to avoid simple dilemmas Ethics doesn't demand that you make yes, no, or don't act, act decisions. For example, if it's a question of whether to talk to someone about a problem, it's not talk or don't talk. It's who might you speak to? How are you going to approach them? What are you going to say? Step five, test the options. There are a range of different tests which exemplify different ethical approaches. And each of the tests sheds different light on the various options. So to avoid black and white thinking, it's a good idea to use at least two different tests. Some of the examples Davis talks about are the harm test. What's the best-cased, worst-cased, and most likely outcome that might come from taking a particular option? Or the reversibility test. If I were in the shoes of the other people in this situation, How would I feel about my proposed action? Or the publicity test. How would I feel if the whole world knew my full actions if I took this particular option? Is that the sort of reputation I'd be happy to have? Or the professional test. Am I breaking any of the rules of my professional body by taking this option? Or the legal test. Am I breaking the law or causing my organization to break a law or regulation? And the virtue test. What sort of person would I be if I regularly took this sort of option? And would I be comfortable being that sort of person? If you choose two tests well, they'll highlight different aspects of each option and will hopefully guide you towards one particular option. It doesn't, by the way, have to be the option that passes the most tests. After applying the tests, you may just decide that one particular test gives an undisputable right answer. The final step is review. I like to think of this step as the, how did I get myself into this mess? And how do I avoid having to go through this process again for a similar situation? This step can include organizational change, but the main point isn't really to fix the organization, but to focus on our own behavior as an individual. What if by earlier action, by communicating our expectations a bit more clearly, by setting boundaries, we could reduce the chance of being put into difficult ethical circumstances. So that's about it for ethical theory and practical ethics. For the final part of this episode, we're going to look at an accident. The crash of McDonnell Douglas DC-10, flying as Turkish Airlines Flight 981 on the 3rd of March, 1974. This turns out to be the first ever in-flight loss of a wide-bodied commercial passenger jet and it remains one of the worst ever single aircraft disasters. There were two design problems that contributed directly to the crash. The first problem was with the cargo door. On passenger jets, most of the doors need to come inwards in order to open. This means that when the aircraft is pressurised at altitude, the higher internal pressure keeps the doors firmly in place, even if someone actively tries to unlock and open the door. The only way to open the doors is either to be at a very low altitude or to depressurise the cabin some other way first. This plug design is very elegant from a safety point of view, but it makes for difficult doorways since there needs to be a space for the door to come inwards. An alternative design for cargo doors is to have the door itself open purely outwards, but to have a locking mechanism which is fail-safe under pressure. The DC-10 and its competitors all made use of some form of latch hook that deployed from the bottom of the door around a bar set into the airframe. Once the cargo hold was under pressure, this design should make it impossible to unlatch until the pressure goes down again. To check that the latches were properly engaged, the DC-10, Boeing 747, and the Lockheed TriStar all had a small vent door. Even if the main door was closed, the cargo hold couldn't pressurise unless the door was properly closed, which closed the vent door. On the 747 and the TriStar, the vent door was operated by the door locking pins. On the DC-10, the vent door was operated by the same mechanism that closed the locking pins, but not actually directly by the locking pins. So on the other planes, the cargo hold would only pressurise if the door was properly closed and the locking pins were engaged. On the DC-10, the cargo hold could pressurise if the door seemed to be closed. If the pins weren't quite in place, a hard push could bend the internal lever so that the vent closed with the door still unlocked. Now, sudden massive depressurization isn't exactly a good thing, but it isn't quite enough to take a wide-bodied jet out of the sky all on its own. For that, you need a second design flaw. All aircraft have multiple sets of control lines. The DC-10 had three, whilst the 747 and the TriStar had four. The exact number isn't as important as the fact that all of the DC-10's hydraulic control lines ran under the passenger cabin floor. On the 747 and the TriStar, one of the cables ran through the passenger cabin ceiling, providing a physically separate control system. In a May 1970 ground pressure test, For the very first DC-10, the cargo door blasted open. The sudden low pressure pulled the passenger floor down into the cargo hold, severing all of the control lines. McDonnell Douglas blamed the mechanic who was supposed to lock the door and made a few small design changes, the most significant of which was the addition of the small vent door that we've already discussed. But on June 12, 1972, the same thing happened mid-air on American Airlines Flight 96. The plane was lightly loaded, and this time not all of the hydraulic cables were entirely severed, so there was some small degree of control remaining. The captain used differential thrust on the wing engines to help steer the plane safely back to the ground. This is the point where I clarify why this particular accident is being included in an episode on ethics. The DC-10 rear cargo door was not designed and built by McDonnell Douglas. It was made by a company called Convair. They were under pretty autocratic subcontractor management from Lockheed Martin, including limited design freedom and prohibition from talking directly to the regulator, the FAA. As part of their design, they performed safety analysis, and they identified nine accident sequences involving the rear cargo door. They also identified safety improvements that could be made against these accident sequences the safety documentation that McDonnell Douglas presented to the FAA didn't mention these hazards relating to the rear cargo door at all. After the ground incident, Convair shared information on the door design with Boeing, and as a result they recommended several more improvements to the door, which weren't made. There was a particularly strident memo written by one of Convair's senior engineers, Daniel Applegate, urging Convair to make stronger representations to McDonnell Douglas about the need for improvement. Convair didn't take the matter further, because they feared damaging their relationship with McDonnell Douglas. In particular, the issues weren't exactly new information, they were just stressing facts that McDonnell Douglas was well aware of. Further, they had a bit of a difficult commercial relationship, which meant that raising safety issues was almost tantamount to accepting commercial responsibility for fixing them. The Applegate memo predicted that, over the life of the airplane, the cargo doors would come open mid-flight and that it would result in the loss of the airplane. So by now we've had two incidents. There's the one on the ground and there's the American Airlines in-flight problem. The one on the ground is what prompted Convair to make all of these concerns. And the National Transportation Safety Board got involved in the in-flight depressurization. And they recommended two changes, redesigning the vent door so that it was impossible to close the vent unless the door was properly locked, and putting relief vents into the cabin floor so that it didn't collapse, even if the hold depressurized. These changes were supposed to be made in an airworthiness directive. But instead, McDonnell Douglas negotiated with the FAA so that they'd make the changes But they'd be distributed as routine service bulletins. The difference between an airworthiness directive and a service bulletin is very important. An airworthiness directive is a public document with the force of law making very clear that there's a safety problem. Airworthiness directives are a great way to make sure that everyone operating the plane knows that it's got a problem and that the problem needs to be quickly fixed but they're not a great way to sell the safety of your new design to potential customers in a competitive market. A charitable view is that the FAA had a long-term safety interest in good working relationships with US aircraft manufacturers. The less charitable view is that there's a clear conflict of interest when a regulator is tasked with both controlling and promoting the same industry. So the airworthiness directives were not issued, The modifications were made slowly under poor certification control, and the DC-10 operating as Turkish Airlines Flight 981 was still not fixed two years later. The rear cargo door flew open in flight, the cabin floor collapsed, the control lines were severed, and 346 lives were destroyed, along with six hectares of old-growth French forest. There have been a number of different ethical descriptions of the accident, focusing on the roles of the FAA McDonnell Douglas, and the Convair engineers. In particular, the question's been asked whether the engineers should have acted as whistleblowers. I think this is a really good example of why safety ethics is so hard. Convair had already raised concerns with McDonnell Douglas, including through formal safety documents, and they were in the middle of a difficult commercial negotiation where blame and liability played a leading role. The FAA knew about, knew about the problems too, and they had already made trade-off decisions about how to deal with the problems. What's the role of an ethical engineer on this battlefield? Having clearly communicated the risks to their own management, and knowing that their management had in turn clearly communicated those risks to the customer, how far should the engineers have gone? Whistleblowing to the customer or to the regulator would be likely to damage their own company and would be unlikely to actually help resolve the problem. Should they have approached the regulator directly? Should they have gone to the media? Should they try to join in the political game between their management and the prime contractor? Doing the right thing in this case according to a professional code might in fact lead to the wrong outcome. On the other hand, in trying and failing to fulfil a duty to the public safety, they might have definitely been failing a duty to their own employer. So that's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Please do go to the website at disastercast.co.uk to see notes for the episode, transcripts, or leave feedback about the show. If you spot technical errors in the show or you have any questions, please do feel free to use the feedback form. I'm heading down to Australia next week, and the week after that, the 7th to the 11th, I'll be at ANU delivering a course. There's a link to attend the course on the show notes. I'll be in Brisbane the week after that if anyone wants to catch up. But the next episode of the show should be released while I'm in Canberra on the 8th of April. Keep safe.